The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. There were lots of opportunities for a certain part of Ukrainian society to encounter Zelensky and to feel that they knew him. He was not an unknown quantity when he ran for president. And so I think that's important for us to keep in mind. I would say the Western world, so-called, is, is still discovering right who he is. But his loyalty, his integrity, his ideas or his group's ideas about Ukrainian political nationhood have been kind of in the works for a long time. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Who is Vladimir Zelensky? I remember reading about Zelensky when he was a candidate for president. They called him the comic president. It felt surreal when I heard that he actually played the president of Ukraine in a sitcom. It was difficult to imagine how a comedian was prepared to lead a nation. So I was extremely shocked, just like everybody else, when Zelensky proved he was more than capable after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So who is Volodymyr Zelensky? After almost five months after Russia's invasion, I didn't know until I read Jessica Pisano's recent article in the Journal of Democracy. It's called How Zelensky Has Changed Ukraine. Jessica's article was able to explain to me why Zelensky's candidacy resonated with Ukrainians and why he has stayed in Ukraine throughout the invasion. Jessica is an associate professor of politics at the New School for Social Research. Her recent book, Staging Democracy, Political Performance in Ukraine, Russia, and Beyond, is among the most important books on politics of this year. This is a conversation on Ukraine that I've wanted to have for a very long time. We talk a lot about Zelensky, but this is really a conversation about Ukraine, its politics, and how they have evolved. Like always, you can find a full transcript of this conversation at democracyparadox.com. You can also find Democracy Paradox now on Facebook. I just set up the page, so I'd appreciate if anybody who's already on Facebook would just take a moment and like it so we can get this page off the ground. Thanks again for all your continued support. Here is my conversation with Jessica Pisano. Jessica Pisano, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you. So I wanted to focus on your remarkable insights about Vladimir Zelensky. I've read quite a bit about him, just like everybody probably has recently. And I found that your analysis, your discussion about him within the wider context was one of the most insightful pieces that I've come across. 
it brought up some ideas that hadn't even crossed my mind before. And so I was really impressed with the way that you kind of were able to take your research and just explain some of the importance of him within Ukraine. So I want to start out with the simpler question, though. Can you tell us the first time that you remember learning about Vladimir Zelensky? All right. So I have to sort of reach back into the 1990s to answer this question. As a graduate student doing research in Russia and in Ukraine, I watched a lot of television in the evening. And that's where I first came across Zelensky's work uh, as, a, as a comedy improv player. His group from his hometown started performing in 1996, 1997, and he and his troupe treated themes related to Ukraine-Russia relations very early in his career. So I was watching these improv shows partially because that's where a lot of the interesting political commentary was happening at the time, both in Russia and in Ukraine. I think that with Zelensky, starting in 2014 with Russia's first invasion of Ukraine, he and his troupe Studio Kleptal uh, 95 started performing sort of patriotic musical reviews. And in those reviews, they performed songs that very clearly articulated an idea of Ukrainian political nationhood that was very different from anything else that was happening on the national political stage. Um, Ukrainian politicians who wanted to distinguish themselves from Soviet-era Russian-aligned identity used Ukrainian ethnic identity in the Ukrainian language as a kind of natural antipode. But what Zelensky did, working mainly in the Russian language, because that was his native language as a Russified Ukrainian from southeastern Ukraine, he and his troop gave Russian-speaking Ukrainians a way to think about patriotism that was territorial as opposed to ethnic. You know, starting into, I would say, around 2014, this theme sort of becomes very strong in their work. And then, of course, you know, later on, he does Servant of the People and so on and so forth, which treats political themes much more explicitly. I think it's important to note that for Ukrainians who watched these shows, those Ukrainians have known Zelensky for longer than Russians have known Putin. So I heard a podcast, I think it was like The Daily or something, and they were talking about like a Ukrainian couple that had actually met each other at a comedy routine where Zelensky was performing. And that was the first time that it really struck me that he wasn't just some comic, he wasn't just somebody that kind of just appeared on television, the way that in the United States, we have so many different media personalities that become famous because they finally get the audience that they've been pursuing for a long time. It feels like he's had that kind of audience and that kind of resonance with the Ukrainian people for a very long time. Like he didn't just come out of nowhere when he was the lead on Servant of the People. Absolutely. In 2003, he kind of broke with the Russian-based improv comedy league that he was part of in a moment that really, I think, demonstrated loyalty as a personal value because he was asked to stay on as a writer, but that would have meant that his teammates would not have stayed on with him. And rather than advancing his own personal career at the expense of his group, he decided to start his own production company. And so starting then, Ukrainians who watched this type of television and who used Russian in their daily language, because most of Zelensky's work was in the Russian language until recently, 
you know, they knew him from watching television. Studio Kvartal 95 would go on tour. They would travel throughout Ukraine. They would go to vacation destinations like in Turkey, right, where Ukrainians would be on vacation and attend these shows. And then these shows were televised. So there were lots of opportunities for a certain part of Ukrainian society to encounter Zelensky and to feel that they knew him. He was not an unknown quantity when he ran for president. And so I think that's important for us to keep in mind. I would say the Western world, so-called, is, is still discovering right who he is. But his loyalty, his integrity, his ideas or his group's ideas about Ukrainian political nationhood have been kind of in the works for a long time. I kind of like to think about this as the pre-political work that Václav Havel, the Czech playwright and president, talked about as kind of preceding the change that happens in electoral politics. The other thing, though, that I got from both your article and your book was just how insightful Zelensky and his comic team was about explaining the realities of Ukrainian politics in a way that resonated with people. And there might not be a better scene for that than in Servant of the People, when he's surreptitiously recorded just doing a rant in his office. Can you just kind of just explain the scene for people who maybe haven't watched the actual television show and why it is that that resonated with the Ukrainian audience in particular? Sure. So this is so this, first of all, this show is subtitled and available on Netflix. So it's probably one of the most accessible ways to engage with Zelensky's work as a performer. Most of his other work has not been subtitled. So th the scene to which you're referring is one of the opening scenes in this series, where Zelensky is acting in the role of a high school history teacher named Vasil Holoborodko. Now, I just want to note as a sort of side note that the name of the history teacher is the name of a living Ukrainian poet from the Donbass who writes in Ukrainian and whose work was banned in the Soviet Union. He has a different patronymic, but there's a clear reference here. Um, so in the TV series, Holoborodko's uh, supervisor has just barged into Zelensky's character's history class to instruct the students to go set up for a coming election. So Zelensky's character is frustrated that first it's the history class, not the math class, that's considered expendable, and that he and his students are being made to participate in a charade of choice at the ballot box. So part of his tirade is about the idea that Ukrainians are constantly having to choose between the lesser of two evils. Now, we should note that the series was filmed in the Russian language, so it's targeted at the Ukrainian language that used that language and probably was exposed to this kind of pressure and practice. And we also should note that the scene can take place in a school because like in the United States, schools often serve as polling places. So this is what the students were doing. They were setting up. I think this is something that's important to keep in mind about the current war. So when Russian missiles target schools, they're destroying not only the infrastructure of education, they're also destroying the infrastructure of democratic elections. So what's remarkable is the fact that this scene really sets the stage to kind of explain the type of politics that they're dealing with, the fact that everyday people are being brought in to what you describe as political theater. There's an interesting line in your book, Staging Democracy, where you explain what that is. You write, political theater can at once change what the state is and expand its reach in contemporary capitalism. Can you just take a moment and explain what political theater is and why it describes the politics of a country like Ukraine? Sure. So political theater, as I use the term, refers to performances of democracy staged by ruling political parties that are usually friendly to the Kremlin. 
So these can be staged demonstrations, paid or pressured participation in elections. The scene that we just described in Zelensky's sitcom, you know, the students are just setting up for the election. They're not doing anything so-called corrupt or they're not manipulating the election. They're just engaged. But it's a clear reference to the constellation of practices in which students are often involved by their superiors. And the key part of political theater is that it's very efficient and cheap because it uses existing hierarchies like the hierarchy that involves a school director, a teacher, and students where students have other reasons to do what the teacher might ask them to do. So if part of what they're being asked to do is to go out on the town square and demonstrate for the president, they'll do it because their grades are at stake. So this type of manipulation in political theater isn't generally observable, as we talked about at the ballot box, because it's really woven into everyday life. And this has to do with the state and the reach of the state, because people are getting pulled onto the stage by people they know, their boss at work, their kid's teacher, the village mayor. So the staging of democracy brings the state back in at the local level, even if people might think that the state is weak otherwise. So when we're talking about elections in Ukraine before Russia's full-scale war, people often use the word corruption to describe political theater. But I don't think the concept corruption fully captures what's going on. And that's why I wrote the book. So in your book, and as I went through the article a second time, you also describe political theater as being important within a country like Russia. And it's shocking to think about the fact that you've got a democratic nation like Ukraine and an autocratic nation like Russia who have such close similarities. And in the book you write, political theater and its underlying political economy cut across regime types. How does political theater also describe autocratic regimes that don't have democratic elections? So in the context of Russia, political theater is really the main way that the Kremlin governs. We see currently a turn toward more use of violence and sort of traditionally autocratic repressive measures. But in the main, the way in which the current government has been constantly reelected is by using these same tools. The difference in Russia, of course, is that elections aren't competitive and there's only one stage and just one play. And increasingly, it's getting very difficult for people to leave the theater if they don't want to participate. And in Ukraine, so Kremlin-leaning political parties would use political theater to mobilize their constituencies, even as elections remained competitive. But in both countries, the mechanisms that pulled people onto the stage were really very similar. And they're all about local state and economic elites using economic leverage they have over people to persuade them or pressure them to vote or behave in certain ways. If we look at Russia, you know, at the start of Russia's full-scale war against Ukraine, I heard the same thing over and over again from people in Russia. I'm against the war, but if I speak out, I'll lose my job. And if I lose my job, that won't change the situation, so I'll stay silent. Even despite the presence of a strongly articulated state ideology, an economic logic prevails in people's everyday actions. It's fascinating because some of the criticism about Ukraine is oftentimes drawn to the idea that there's some similarities with Russia. And sometimes the similarities that you're describing about dramaturgy within elections is seen as a reason to just assume that Ukraine's not democratic. And in some ways, there are aspects of it that are undemocratic. But you're actually saying that this phenomenon isn't really about democracy and authoritarianism. I mean, it's almost like a separate phenomenon entirely that then interacts with our political systems in different ways. It's just a fascinating perspective to be able to take on politics that can cut across not just in Russia and Ukraine, but other places as well. 
I think that's a fair and great way to put it. I think also that it's important to keep in mind that in the context of Ukraine, the political parties that tended to use political theater were political parties that had a close relationship with the Kremlin. And so even as this type of dramaturgy can be used in democratic systems, its origins appear to be in some way anchored in what many people regard as some form of authoritarian system. So it's disruptive. Political theater disrupts democracy. It was used in Ukraine over many electoral cycles by different politicians. I'm not sure that we should think about it as a phenomenon that's proper to Ukraine or that would be present in Ukraine absent Russian influence. No, that's fair. But at the same time in the book, you do make some implications that we can see aspects of it even within the United States, that maybe we could argue that there's some Russian influence in the United States due to the 2016 elections. But I don't think that we would say that it's a pervasive influence within the United States. I mean, it'd be a very minor one in the grand scheme of things within American political traditions. Yet we're still seeing some aspects of it. I think what's key to remember here is that the tools of political theater are portable. They can be used anytime politicians uh, manage to politicize state bureaucracies. So the announced plan by the 45th president, should he be reelected as president, to fully politicize the federal bureaucracy, that is to say, to use tests of loyalty to determine whether civil servants can continue to serve, is an example of this. The politicization of the state in this way and the mobilization of people using economic incentives at the local level can happen anywhere that people have something to lose where social safety nets can be politicized, and where there's some degree of precarity. And so I think this is one reason why we need to be on guard against the possibility of its use. So I want to bring Zelensky back into the conversation. And in the article you wrote, paradoxically, Zelensky, master of onstage communication, took theater out of Ukrainian electoral politics. Now, I don't want to jump all the way to the moment where he gets elected to president. But you imply that he was already doing that when he was just a comedian. And he was doing that through his television show, Servant of the People. How is it that he was able to use comedy in a way to be able to break down the sense of drama within Ukrainian politics? That's a great question. So there are a couple of elements here. The first is that Zelensky ran a basically internet-based campaign for president. So although I'm sure if we look, we could find examples of people receiving something, you know, by and large, his campaign did not rely upon pressure or economic incentives to get people to turn out, in my understanding. So that's the first thing. So he sort of took the dramaturgy out of Ukrainian electoral politics in the sense that he didn't try to compel people onto a stage to vote for him. People showed up to vote for him because they were really tired of uh, the status quo and they wanted something new. And, you know, Zelensky offered that possibility. But secondly, I would also say that in moving his campaign to the Internet, you know, Zelensky kind of changed the place where politics happens. And so in changing the location of politics, he engaged a whole different set of people and brought a lot of people into the political process who might have thought about it differently in other contexts. So 
it's easy to think of Ukrainian politics as being very bifurcated before we get to the war. And a lot of the research that you did was done in the east of Ukraine, and particularly among people who supported the Party of Regions. And I think that there's an assumption that with the bifurcated nature of Ukrainian politics before the war, that politics was very different between those who supported the Party of Regions and those who supported a more Western-leaning type of politics. But during the debate, when Zelensky was facing off with the current president, Poroshenko, he had a famous line. He said in the debate, Mr. Poroshenko, I am not your opponent. I am your verdict. And I think when he says that, he's not just referring to somebody who'd be like a Yanukovych-type president who was very corrupt and left office after the Revolution of Dignity. I mean, he seems to be referring to almost the entire political class within Ukraine. Am I understanding that right? I think so. In that debate, Zelensky also said, I came here to break this system. And I think that's what he, you know, he positioned himself as an anti-systemic candidate, as a person outside the regular practice of politics in Ukraine, as a person outside of political machines and political theater. So I think that I agree with that interpretation. I think it's worth noting that this sort of supposed divide between Eastern and Western Ukraine, this trope, I think, confuses and confused ethnic identity with opportunities for the conduct of political theater. In Western Ukraine, which in elections prior to Russia's invasions, you know, tended to favor candidates who were sort of so-called Western-leaning, who typically spoke Ukrainian, who were pro-EU, and so on and so forth, whereas people in the East and South of Ukraine sometimes or often supported candidates who seemed to be leaning toward the Kremlin. A lot of times that was interpreted as an identity-based divide. But I think what happened in Ukrainian politics after 2014 sort of, you know, gives lie to that interpretation. I think that a lot of what was happening in the East and South of Ukraine prior to Russia's invasions was that the opportunities to bring people onto this stage were simply much more numerous in party of regions territories. There were company towns, people working in industry, in large-scale agriculture a lot of educational institutions, large hospitals. The opportunities were really very present in those regions of Ukraine for pressuring people. And so I don't know that we can interpret Ukrainians' behavior at the ballot box prior to 2014 in the regions that compose the east and south of Ukraine as ideological support for Russia-leaning candidates. I think there were other things going on here, economic things. And I think, frankly, it's one of the reasons why the Kremlin was surprised that they were not greeted with flowers, because this interpretation of the east and south of Ukraine as somehow supporting Russia in Russia was seen as identity-based. But, you know, I think a lot of this had to do with pressure. And Ukrainians in the east and south of Ukraine, as Zelensky knows and communicated, were as patriotic as anywhere else in Ukraine. So Zelensky gets elected president. And he gets elected not just because he's an outsider, but because Ukrainians really trust him. I mean, they believe him. And maybe not all Ukrainians, but a large enough number that it was able to really create some momentum for his campaign and propel him to the presidency. He's in office for a little while before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And 
during that period, I didn't get the impression of him as being just the hero that he ended up becoming. How did Ukrainians who actually lived in that government and actually paid much closer attention, how did they view the performance of Zelensky in that period between his election and Russia's full-scale invasion? Great question. So again, it depends on who you ask and what issue area we're looking at. I think it is important that we remember that Zelensky has been a wartime president since the day he was inaugurated. It's true that President Zelensky was more popular before he was elected and has been more popular since Russia's full-scale war than he was in the period in between. He and his team are phenomenally competent in communication, but there is less agreement about their accomplishments in governance. You know, that said, before Russia started targeting Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, many Ukrainians were pretty happy with the progress that the Zelensky administration had made, say, modernizing Ukraine's roads, which are a potent symbol of corruption everywhere where they're in bad repair. So, you know, his record was certainly mixed in the period in between his election and the war. But in fairness to any politician in office, you know, in 2020 and 2021, the pandemic did not make this an easy period to navigate for anyone. So how has Zelensky's leadership surprised Ukrainians after Russia's full-scale invasion? So I think some people, especially those who were skeptical about Zelensky to begin with, were surprised by the fact that he stayed, by his leadership since. But I think others who, you know, may have followed him for longer may not have been surprised. So as I mentioned before, in his previous career, Zelensky made choices that demonstrated both his loyalty to his team and his profound patriotism. And it's worth noting that he finished his career as a showman in 2019 with most of the same people with whom he started his career back in the 1990s. So these were people like Yohan Koshovi, Olena Kravets, and among others. So he was really, you know, a team player, uh, not someone who advanced himself for himself. And secondly, especially after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, but also much earlier, Zelensky was addressing Russia-Ukraine relationships in his comedy. And even though some Ukrainians and some people in the West were skeptical about his patriotism because he spoke and performed in the Russian language, his attachments to Ukraine, as expressed from the stage, were really quite clear. Now, Jessica, we started out where you admitted that you've been following him on and off since the late 90s. What was your reaction to all this? Like, how did you react when you found out that he was running for president and that he even won in such a large landslide? And then how did you react when you saw him behaving like such a hero? I mean, are you surprised? or? Did you expect this to happen all along as you saw events unfold? Um, I was not surprised that he stayed. No, I don't want to portray myself as some sort of, you know, great fan of Zelensky, the president in the context of policy, because there are many policy areas in which, you know, I might think differently. However, in the context of Russia's full-scale war, I think that the personal qualities that he demonstrated before the war started in 2014 and since its expansion were to be expected. I also think it's important that we keep in mind that something else could have happened with a different president, with a different kind of person. A lot more of Ukraine could be temporarily occupied right now. And so, you know, I think historical contingency is important to keep in mind here. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why Ukrainians are really united right now, even those who may not have appreciated Zelensky's approach to governance. 
they understand perfectly well that what would await them if Russia were to achieve its ends and that Zelensky has stayed and been present the whole time. Let's run the counterfactual. Like, I don't want to do anything extreme like Yanukovych in office. I mean, I think we know what would happen if he was president right now. But what about Poroshenko? I mean, he was elected shortly after the Revolution of Dignity, but a lot of people weren't happy with him. And I already read the quote that Zelensky said about him, you know, said that I'm not your opponent, I'm your verdict. Do you think things would have been dramatically different if Poroshenko had won that election, if Zelensky had just chosen not to run, or even if he'd somehow lost? That's a difficult question. Okay, two things. First, that you know Poroshenko's presidency did seem like a continuation of the status quo for a lot of Ukrainians, which is what Zelensky meant, I think, by, you know, I'm your verdict, that people are just not happy with the way things were going. You know, would things have been dramatically different? That's a little hard to say without being able to see inside the minds of those running things in the Kremlin. You know, it is perfectly clear that this war, the full-scale war, was not planned yesterday. At the same time, I think it's also clear that there are aspects of Zelensky's vision of Ukrainian identity that are particularly threatening to the Kremlin. I mean, others have talked about the idea of, you know, having a democracy next door is threatening, but I think it's actually more than that. Zelensky showed Russian-speaking Ukrainians a way to be patriots of Ukraine. And his emphasis on a civic identity as expressed in the Ukrainian constitution, so not a new idea, but his emphasis on this, an emphasis on including all Ukrainians and on Ukraine as a political nation, not the opposite of what the Kremlin is saying <laughs> Zelensky is, is promoting, but the idea of Ukraine as a political nation is threatening to an imperial worldview. I love how you brought up how Zelensky has made Ukrainians think differently about themselves as a single people. Can you help explain how he did that? Is it just through his person, like who he is? Is it through words that he's made? Is it through actions or policies? Like, how has he actually achieved that? So I think there are a lot of different ways in which he does that. But one of the things, if you look at the way Zelensky addresses his compatriots, and you know, we see this in his evening video broadcasts, in his speeches and in his interviews abroad, his emphasis is always on his compatriots and not on himself. I wrote in the article, he uses Homeric epithets to address his compatriots. He encourages people to see the best in themselves, not the best in him. You might remember back in uh, late January 22, Zelensky, somewhat controversially from an American perspective, described himself as, quote, the president of a great power. Now, I think Zelensky might have been referring to a poem and patriotic song from 2014, We'll Never Be Brothers, whose last lines described Russia as huge, but Ukrainians as great. But I think the point here is that Zelensky encourages Ukrainians to see what they're capable of, that they're the most daring that they are strong. You know, that's real leadership. His focus is on other people, not on himself. So Jessica, what really struck me about your piece was how important Zelensky has been. I mean, in a lot of ways, he is changing the way Ukraine's politics operate. But it begs the question whether or not it's Zelensky that's driving this, if he is the key cog to be able to make a change in the politics in Ukraine, 
or whether he's fundamentally changed the system itself. So who knows who's going to follow him as the next president, but I do wonder how you imagine that Zelensky's successor will govern. Do you think that they'll just revert back to old forms, or do you think that Zelensky's made that impossible, that he's established something that future leaders are going to have to follow after him? Great question. So I think something that both leaders in the West and the Kremlin need to keep in mind is that Ukraine has a deep bench. I think Zelensky has set a standard and precedent for communication that future politicians in Ukraine will have to live up to. We should note that it's not just Zelensky who's communicating so successfully with the Ukrainian public. Other members of his administration, ad- advisors, governors, people like Arostovich, Podolyak, um, Kim, and also politicians like Kharkiv Mayor Ihor Terekhov are very publicly behaving in ways that are different in Ukrainian politics. I don't think Ukrainians are going to be willing to go back. Now, of course, what people in Ukraine in future generations, and there will be future generations, notwithstanding Russia's war with its organized mass deportations and rape and so forth, what Ukrainians in future generations will remember about Zelensky in this period, you know, could end up depending on whether countries in Europe and North America put their money where their mouth is to support Ukrainians' fight for their existence as a country. You know, if the Kremlin were to achieve its aims, we know that Russia will rewrite the history of this war, including Zelensky's role in it. For example, already there have been unconformed reports out of parts of Kharkiv region and other temporarily occupied territories that Russian forces are pulling a man in the high tower move. When they move in, they cut off communication with the outside world and tell Ukrainians that Russia has won the war, that their city or all of Ukraine has fallen or been divided up. So it's not just the present, but also the future of the past that's at stake here. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to give a plug one more time for your book, Staging Democracy, Political Performance in Ukraine, Russia, and Beyond. It's really something that anybody who wants to understand politics in Ukraine and Russia should probably read right now. And there's so much interest in that region at the moment. And it's just one of those books that should be on everybody's list. And then, of course, the article that she wrote as well, How Zelensky Has Changed Ukraine. I thought that that was just the perfect coda for the book that you wrote. I think that they complement each other and they help explain how things are evolving within the region as well. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for writing those pieces. Thank you, Justin, so much for, for this opportunity to talk about Ukraine. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research, 
and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.